One. Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to The Bright Light. Uh, I'm your host, Lacey Johnson. Uh, each week, we bring you information and feature guests to help uh, give some light to some of the things and achievement that they've done and to share lights uh, with you uh, on what they've done and how they've done it. And we uh, have a very exciting guest this evening, and I'll be introducing her shortly here. Uh, but before I go on, uh, I do realize, and as I explained the last time, uh, that we are uh, in the Twin Cities area, and we have been kind of the center of the uh, news and media world uh, for the past few weeks, and especially yesterday and part of today. And I'll be reminiscent if I did not say something about that. And I'll just repeat uh, some of the things, I uh, messages I sent out yesterday. Uh, first of all, I think it's great that we can finally turn to healing our families, our community, and the city of Minneapolis. I hope we can get down to that. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, uh, it's a challenge today but we must do it. We must remind ourselves that there's a common humanity among us and we must focus less on our differences and we must stop letting people drive wedges between us as people and decent human beings. And then the third thing I'll say on that is that I hope we can go forward while we're healing and start rebuilding uh, this city and everything that's been torn down and affected in a negative way in a bigger and better manner. And now, you know, not to trivialize it, but on a personal side, uh, I got a little grandson I tell everybody about, uh, little Aiden Prince, and he is the bright light of my heart. But uh, me and my wife, uh, better we were talking about taking him to the zoo uh, sometime pretty soon. Uh, so he, he loves to look out our patio door at squirrels and crows and, as he say, rabbits. And I'm just looking forward to introducing him to lions and tigers and bears and snakes and pretty birds and dolphins and all kinds of things at the zoo. Uh, but my wife said to me, she said, well, they said, we better wait until after the trial is over and see what's going to happen because uh, we don't want to get out there and get in the middle of things. So what I'm trying to say is that now that everything is old, I'm going to be purchasing zoo tickets and I'm going to look forward to taking my little grandson to the zoo for the first time. Okay, having said that, let's get started with everything. Uh, today's guest is Martha Najamoli. I hope I got that right. I'm going to ha have her correct me when, when she gets on. Uh, Martha is an economist with the American Experience and she's had a lot of background. She's been very involved. Uh, and so, uh, hi, Martha, how are you doing? Hi, Lacey, good evening. Thank you for having okay. me. Okay, first thing you need to do, Martha, is get me out of trouble with my audience here and <laughs> uh, pronounce your last name for me. And I practice it a little bit, believe it or not. Yeah, so so it's uh, Njolomoli. Jolomoli, okay, Jolomoli, okay, thank you. Welcome to the Bright Lights. You are an economist, correct? Yes. Yes, and I understand. Why don't you, without leading the audience or leading you, tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you're from, and growing up, and how all that uh, influenced you uh, as you went through life. 
Yeah, so uh, I am from Malawi. Uh, it's a small country in Southeast Africa. It's about 18 million people, so like about uh, four, uh, four times the size of Minnesota population-wise. So I, I grew up in an area that was could best be described as like uh, suburban rural. So you have a lot of people uh, farming and also some people doing businesses. So uh, as far as I know, uh, from what my relatives tell me, so my great-great-grandparents came from somewhere and then they settled around, around that area. So in the past, I guess they used to have, you know, big plots of land for farming, but as times went on, so those plots became smaller and smaller. So most of my family uh, practiced uh, uh, small-scale farming. So one thing that actually stuck with me during those times was that uh, we had a president a while back that introduced this uh, subsidy program whereby they would give coupons to farmers to buy fertilizer. Mm -hmm. so when you actually convey the currency, the Malawian currency to US dollars, it's probably like three, four dollars. So that's like very little money when mm -hmm. you perspective. But that just points to how poor people are like you know in that region so that was one of the things that stuck with me about how you know most of people around me had uh, low incomes and then the second thing that i also noticed is that i was i was very curious so that i'll read pieces of newspapers um i used to listen to the radio a lot mm -hmm. so you'd hear stories about you know malawi got financial aid from the us or the uk of course, then I didn't. I had no idea of you know how developed most of these countries were. So I always wondered, you know, why are we so poor? You know, the people around me, or most of them are poor. Our country is poor. So what can I do, you know, to to contribute? Mm -hmm. But because the government was such a big part of Malawi, my idea was that I was going to study economics and then come back and work in the government. But then I studied economics here. I figured. Uh, non-profit is the way to go. So that that's what brought me here today. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. Uh, uh, good. Now, most countries in Africa, I think I'm right about this, a lot of them are resource rich, mm -hmm. even though the people are generally uh, not so well off and there's very seldom a large middle class. Is that something similar to the way it is in Malawi and what type of resources do you uh, natural resources and things that they have that could uh, serve as the foundation for generating wealth for more people in that country? Um, I cannot say for sure that that's the case with Malawi. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, I, I've heard some things about uh, bauxite deposits in some sort of uh, rare minerals and like oil in the lake. But I, I, in, in as far as they're there, I don't think they're like huge deposits as most countries like Zimbabwe or South Africa. Uh, I think the issues lie deep with like the institutions, you know, uh, the right. institutions, lack of freedom and uh, things of that nature. Okay. Uh, now you mentioned that you developed these passion and interests growing up and you wanted to get into economics. Uh, how old were you when you left Malawi? So I was 17 actually. So that was okay. 2013. That's when I started my undergraduate program in economics at Troy University. Okay. Okay. Well, I should share that uh, my wife of 34 years is from Alabama, and I'm very familiar with that uh, area down there. Uh, how was it going to school in Troy? Did you find it somewhat of a culture shock, or were you able to move in and just join right in with the uh, people down there as far as the, their culture and what they like to eat, what they like to do, uh, the music, etc.? How was it adjusting to 
uh, coming to America and specifically uh, going to uh, Troy University in Alabama. Yeah, I think I think it was very different just culturally. I think it could have been a shock whichever area of the United right. States. But, right. but I think, you know, the food is different. Uh, people address you differently. You know, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of like a social distance uh, type of thing in Malawi. You know, you're, you're uh, expected to respect your elders, you bow. <laughs> when you talk, <laughs> things like that that I didn't find uh, here. And you can address people older than you by their first name. So that was one thing that, one thing that shook me. Okay. But, uh, one of the biggest things, actually, that I, I found very hard to get used to was was this idea of you know individualism. Uh, in Malawi, most we are very very uh, communal. So weddings are like a community affair. People don't get invited to weddings. You know, people don't send out inv invitations. If there's a wedding, everybody goes. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. Yeah, funerals are like that. Uh, you know, you have this huge procession marching. Uh, through the area to, to the to the graveyard. So when I came here, the idea of individualism sounded kind of selfish. Wow, to get used to it. But I, and I understood later on, you know, it's just differences. And no one culture is better than than the other. Yeah, all of those exist because of the surrounding institutions. You know, um, in Malawi, you have to be close like that because it acts sort of like an enforcement mechanism for bad behavior. Yeah. You know, if you have somebody that doesn't like to pay their loans, uh, once everybody hears about it, they're they, they not lending them money. So that's one way you get to enforce uh, good behavior. That's why you have all these uh, courts and the police and the system is very well developed. So yeah, that, that's, uh, it took a little to get used to, but okay. <laughs> I'll go through the process. Well, just so you know, uh, and it's my show and I can make commentary when I interject commentary when I want to. Okay. There was a time when we were respectful of our elders and very respectful. And I grew up in during the same type of culture where, and I tell a lot of people, and I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to get into hyperbole, but elders and parents were like gods on earth almost. And uh, and I and I'm kind of like you too. One of the that was one of the uh, two most surprising things uh, I ran into when I came to Minnesota. That there was actually kids who didn't like their parents and walked away from and ran away from home. That was just such a shock to me. And then just an aside, and I'll get back to our interview. Uh, the fact that fighting could be a verbal thing. I, I was originally confused. They had a fight, and a lot of times they meant it was just a verbal thing. And I'm like, and so those are the two th little small things that that that, that I, I I had to get used to when I moved here. Is there any particular? Let, let's talk a little bit about the food down there. Is there any particular dish that you had for the first time? You just said, "Hey, where has this been all of my life?" Ah. Uh it was more, more of, I guess, the opposite. Like, why am I eating this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say anything that I, I well, I, I found grits very surprising. The, the whole concept was. <laughs> oh, greens? No, grits. Oh, uh, grits. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, grits. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. I can yeah, understand and that. The fact that you eat them with catfish. I, I couldn't get around the whole idea. <laughs> and uh, iced tea was also strange because most, most African places, you, you drink tea while it's hot and you always have sugar in it, so, right. yeah. And, and one last question on that area. What did you miss most about your country when you first came here to go to college at Troy University? 
Um, well, I, I would have to say, because it was, I came from an area where, you know, everybody knew everybody. So my family, actually, all of the, uh, my whole extended family from my maternal side, we all live a walking distance from each other. Right, <laughs> so right. I, I get to see all my, my great grandparents, all my my uncles and aunts, all of them. So yeah, that, it was hard to live in an area where that is like not the norm, because you know, most people just come to the school, their families live all around the country. So Yeah, well, <laughs> you, you keep reminding me of my childhood too, where I grew up around all of my uncles and aunts and grandparents and great grandparents. And you know, those days seem like they're gone. Uh, so let's let's get back to uh, your uh, growing up in Malawi. I understand that uh, as part of that uh, growth process that you develop a passion uh, for research into the social and economic conditions of disadvantaged uh, communities. Uh, did, what did your research, well, first of all, did you get a chance to do research once you got to Troy and now that you're here, have you done research in that area? Uh, yeah, so my my program at Troy was very general. So it was pretty much focused on just understanding how, you know, resources are allocated in, in an economy and what the base system is, you know, what each type of system says, at least what each type of economic theory says. Mm -hmm. So I remember my uh, master's economic uh, research paper was on microfinance. You know, microfinance was one of the, the, the big steps that were taken to you know, spur development in uh, any developing uh, countries. So I did research on that, just pretty much analyzing why it didn't bring as much growth as it did, which I found the issue was with the institutions, you know, there's less economic freedom in, in those areas. So you have people that start businesses, but they don't have protection from the law, you know, from the system when of, uh, of those businesses and then you have people that have lands but you know those lands are not registered right. uh, and so they the, the property property rights are very uncertain so people don't have a lot of incentives to you know develop and invest in those lands so these these are issues that are pretty much common in what uh, economic research says you know uh, is what leads to, to you know poverty and decline it's it's uh, it's like um you tend to see this issue too when you look at the levels of freedom in between uh, uh, countries and how much they've grown actually. So I was looking at this data the other day on economic freedom rankings, you know, by the Heritage Foundation. Uh -huh. So the United States ranks like number 12 on, on freedom, which means it's one of the most free countries in the world. When uh -huh. it comes to their per capita incomes, it's also pretty high. So there's a very big correlation there. You know, When you have lower taxes, when you have regulations that don't prevent people from working or people from starting businesses, you tend to see growth and then you tend to see less poverty. So the, the, the issues, that the ideas are, are the same. You have freedom, you have growth, and then you have uh, less poverty. Uh, I think that's the, the general theory t tends to hold in most areas. That's a pretty good observation because for a lot of people, it's kind of counterintuitive. They think the more taxes that you put in, the more people money people are going to have. And I think that's an excellent point, uh, even though our history has proven whether you look at the JFK tax cut, any tax cuts, it generally leads to uh, economic growth. But it's kind of intuitive to a lot of people and to, uh, to be honest with a lot of people in our media. Uh, you touched on 
uh, the role of government. And I know, and, and but before I go there, I, I need to remind people that uh, uh, Martha is, uh, you can uh, Google her and you will see her writings and Martha, M-A-R-T-H-A, Nijamoli. Uh, <laughs> I get that. Uh, it's in, I can spell it. Now, I, I was a okay. great spelling bee champion in this baking room, so I can still spell a little bit. Uh, N-J-O-M-O-L-E. Did I get that right, Martha? So there's an L-O after the J-O. Okay, you spell it for our audience. Well, so the last name is N-J-O-L-O-M-O-L-E. Okay, that's why I'm mispronouncing on this spelling. Okay, so Google her and you'll have context, access to a lot of her writings. But I was going to ask, we had been talking about the role of government, and you mentioned that how the government in your country uh, what they did as for as protection and, and things like that and, and providing for people. And I got the impression in reading that that you, you see a different role for government uh, as far as what it relates to its citizens, its people, and what's best for, for its people. Can you expound on that uh, a little bit for me? Ah, ah, yes, definitely. So it, it was very different in Malawi, you know, because I went to a government school uh, in primary school I, I went i was selected to go to university of malawi which is a government university you know i went to every time i got sick i went to a government hospital you know the government is the, the biggest uh, employer in the malawian economy so i i, I tended to, to see the the government as as a provider and it, it didn't really bother me <laughs> a bit i thought that was as a normal thing but you know once i get to learn about economics uh, and what really drives growth. I think now that, you know, government is better off just focusing on, you know, uh, creating and enforcing, you know, laws, making sure that they are applied uniformly. Uh, they should focus on, you know, pro protecting uh, ownership rights uh, and just human rights in general. They should focus on, you know, enforcing uh, contracts, whether it be uh, businesses, uh, things of that sort. So I think, in as far as the government is set on just uh, promoting ever a stable and you know consistent operating environment, economically or socially, uh, the private sector is more than capable, you know, of developing, of pr providing jobs and economic growth. So that is my dear right now. Right. Okay. Okay. And you. And like we said a couple of times before, you made you mastered in economics at Troy University. And I'm not an uh, economics subject matter expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I read a little bit about it. And I do do know that there are different schools of economics. Uh, there's the, there's the, the philosophy of demand side economics versus supply side economics. There's Keynesian. Uh, that's the whole the Chicago School of Economics. And in fact, if you see the list, that's a whole bunch of them. Uh, personally, I'm just a little bit that I do know, and I stress the little bit that I do know. I, I, I'm kind of a, a, a convert of uh, Milton Friedman. I just like his whole idea about uh, freedom. And just like you said, uh, the limited role for government and things like that. And I just really have been impressed with the Nobel laureate, uh, Milton, the late Nobel laureate, Milton Friedman. But, but that's a long way of asking you, do you have any particular types of schools of economics that you are a proponent of, or is it a mesh of them? And I'll give you a chance to respond, Martha. Yeah, so my 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 program was very much Austrian uh, 
oriented. So, so I read a lot of, uh, you know, Frederick Hayek, uh, Ludwig von Mises. Uh, so I think these are my, my biggest influences. So these are two people that were writing, um, in, for the most part, against, you know, socialism or just the idea of planning an economy uh, centrally. Uh, one of uh, Hayek's most famous essays right now, the, the use of knowledge in society. I think that's one of the, you know, the biggest attributes why the market are the best for allocating resources. So um, basically what he said was that, you know, like me right now, if you if you if somebody asked me what do you think Lacey wants for dinner, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to know because you know, he, his preferences are like not the same as mine, the same as everybody else uh, outside. So people are making decisions based on those preferences, you know. And then as they make those decisions, you know, prices tend to change. You know, if people are buying more oranges now, you know, prices of oranges will go up, which will send a signal to farmers in say Florida that you know people are buying more oranges maybe you should invest more in oranges uh the same if uh people are buying less oranges the opposite will happen so there is no single person that that knows you know this is how many people like oranges and this is how all these farmers should use all their resources to produce so this is why the free market is based because you have all these prices telling you this is what people want right now and this is where you should uh, invest all your resources you know uh, the same way that if you have two people working having the same amount of salary if you raise their their incomes you know even at the, the same level one of them would choose to say work more because you know they have a higher wage now so they want they value the more money, but the other one would choose to work less because the money that they have now, they can substitute that for, you know, for, for they can still consume at the same amount, but still have a lot of free time. They value the free time. Right, all right, right. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, you, you can't choose for, you know, everybody has different preferences. They value things differently. That's why through the, the price system, you're able to coordinate all those decisions and then you come together and you produce value for everybody. So that is uh, pretty much the, the basic idea there it's much more complex than that would uh, no, 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 that's a good answer though yeah. but and, and once again before we go any further i'm weaving in and out of here uh, uh, our interview as far as economics is concerned uh what some of the people out in the audience may be wondering is uh, what brought you to minnesota and was that uh, right after you uh, got your master's uh, at troy Yes, so I came to Minnesota in October of 2019. So that was a couple of months after I, I graduated. It was, it was a little later because I, I had an immigration thing that I needed sorting out. But so I came here, so I came here for the job. Uh, now, who reached out to whom? Uh, did, how did you see, how, how, how did you, how were you made aware of this job to uh, apply for it in the first place? Uh, um, well, th there's there's an online website. I forgot the name, but it's mm -hmm. it's where libertarian conservative think tanks post, you know, their vacancies. Okay. So, yeah. So I went on their website and I applied for the job. So. Oh, okay. Good. Good. Yeah. I'm glad that they hired you too. Yeah. Okay. So I do know also, Martha, that you have been writing on COVID and the impact that it has had on our public education system. Can you shed a little light on your thoughts in that area for me, please? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting and sort of sad to see because, you know, a lot of things have happened with the, the school closures. 
So you you know you had uh, students you know being taken away from their you know their friends being isolated from their friends. You know kids' social systems are I most exclusively built on the school system. And then besides that, you know, you, you disrupt their routine, you know? Uh, so yeah. there was a lot of anxiety that came on with that, a lot of fear, loneliness. So the CDC actually they produced a study last year. So they said that between March and October of 2020, uh, the, the mental health visits that they had in the emergency departments, they were up by like 31% uh, among like kids aged 12 and 17. And then among kids aged five and 11, they were up by almost like a quarter, like 24%. So that's a, a pretty huge number, a pretty huge deal because once these people get older, those those type of uh, illnesses tend to get worse. So that is also like a crisis that we've created uh, in another crisis. And then there was the issue with uh, learning loss. You know, a lot of students had to go remote. Uh, so this, this issue was actually worse among students of color and low-income students because one, they were most likely to be in public schools, which means they were most likely to, to be learning remotely. Mm -hmm. And two, they, they are most likely to have uh, parents that don't know how to use computers or don't know how to access online learning resources. You know, parents that can't fully support them as parents of, you say, high-income uh, uh, students. And also, you know, in general, these people don't have the right resources, you know, like computers, internet. So their learning losses were actually more, more signified than uh, among high income students. Uh, a report by McKinsey, so this is a, a research uh, group online, said, so this was June last year. They said that just closing uh, school in the spring, so why students lost like one to three months of math, like in learning? But for students of color, that was three to five months. And if, if that closure went on to June, that, that loss was going to be like a year for students of color and just like eight months for now, you know, white students. And that, I think most people know that schools in Minnesota have been closed for way longer than that. So that's also like a big loss in learning. But this translates, you know, in the future, this translates to, you know, loss in earnings because you know people are uh, students not accumulating skills right now this means as they go on they'll be a, uh, they'll have a hard time even accumulating advanced skills so they're they're losing money uh, uh in the future and just basically there's loss in gdp and just yeah it's it's all been just bad on a lot of things and it's it's also worse because when you look at the numbers actually students don't have a high risk of contracting COVID, transmitting it, or even dying from it. So when you look at Minnesota right now, actually only four, only, actually only two people between the ages of, of one and 19 have died from COVID. And between uh, uh, zero and 29, the number is just 12. So, you know, the, the, the fatality rate, you know, the, the infection fatality rate actually for young people is like 0, 0.00 something. It's much different from the, the other people that have like a 30% rate of the risk of dying. You know, the median age for COVID right now to, is like 84. The median age of death from COVID is 84. But there's been this damage on kids that shouldn't have happened uh, in the first place. So, Did I hear you correctly that the median age is 84? Yes. So when you look at the numbers, wow. media, it's like, yeah. So it's, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess and, 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 yeah, well, here's the thing for our audience, and I think I remember my basic mathematics here. Medium means that half the people are below that age and half of them are above that age. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, so, yes, yes, yes. Huh, that's, that's surprising uh, uh, knowledge even for me. And uh, you touched a little bit on the business. and Could you touch a little bit more? Because in Minneapolis, and, 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 and here's the thing. Well, a couple of things before we move on to business. Uh, you mentioned the impact on education and, and uh, learning remotely and the impact it has, especially on uh, children of color. Uh, and what I've been saying to a lot of people along that line, that's already an educational achievement gap. Now you just blew it even further open and, and it's going to make it even more difficult to catch up. And, and, okay. and, 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 and even I mentioned earlier that I have a little grandson. I could tell from him and I even talked to his parent about uh, you could see he, he was missing the socialization and being around his his friends and stuff. And it was and I think it was impacting his development as a child, too. So that's a lot of things that we sacrifice. And, you know, I, I, I'll just say this and I'll leave it alone is that there's always trade offs uh, that you have to make uh, this. And, you know, I'm the classic corporate guy with the risk management corp quadrant where you look at the uh, chances of it happening and the impact of it and you make decisions based on that. Uh, I, I'm not so sure we did that this time around. So that, that's, that's a good point that you make. Uh, what what about, do you see the businesses coming back? Have, have there been any studies within Minnesota of the impact of COVID and even the looting and riding on small businesses, mainly small, no, just forget small business, businesses, period here in Minnesota, what in the field of economist are, is being talked about as far as impact and what we see down the road? And is there any, can we ever uh, get back to normal? Uh, just touch on a few of those uh, uh, topics as is apply uh, to businesses here uh, in the Twin Cities and the struggles a lot of them have been having. Yeah, so well, when we look at the numbers, actually, it was mostly like the service sector that was, you know, heavily impacted. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was, as as they deemed it, non-essential. So you had a lot of restaurants, hotels, you know, movie theaters closing up. Well, you know, they had all these social distancing rules that basically made it impossible for some of them to, to operate or even make a profit. Well, some were even, uh, you know, losing money while operating. And then I think the worst thing about the lockdown was the, the uncertainty of it, you know, because like in the in the winter, you had uh, you had people installing all these heating, uh, you know, heating systems outside because they, they figured if there's less space inside, we might as well take our customers outside, you know. So mm -hmm. during the winter, they put out all these uh, heating systems. And then a, a week, two weeks, later the governor comes out and says well we have to shut down all eating at restaurants and when people had made all these investments <laughs> that they they pretty much went to waste so there was there was a heavy impact for sure on the on the service industry i know there's a there's a small theater right close to me that i can just walk to they closed down i think in june because by then they were because the, the wave was pretty big during that time. I thought they were going to open again, but they just shut down permanently right now. So they are not coming back. 
So you have stories like that. And the worst thing is that most of the people that work in these areas or in these uh, in the sectors are, you know, like low-income individuals that are already facing their own issues. And then you're, you're compounding on that. Uh, a lot of restaurants are going out of business. So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's been a, a big blow to small businesses and low-income workers. Because, because, you know, most, most of these laws were very isolated, like just mm -hmm. focusing them. It's almost like it was just a target you know you you got a target uh nobody social distancing there that's a that's a good point that yeah. you make it uh we, we talked a little bit about the education system and close and the businesses and closely coupled to that is another area that i've seen some writings uh, from you on is the whole area of child care uh, and maybe, and even in the context of how it relates to businesses and schools, uh, maybe you can share with our audience uh, some of your thoughts about the challenges uh, in childcare area. And just as importantly, what we always wanna do is talk about potential solutions to these challenges. So can you touch on that uh, uh, briefly for our audience, please? Yes, so, so childcare, interestingly, was one of the, the issues that I just started writing on that when I first came to the center. So it's, it's a pretty big issue, actually, when you look at it. So uh, childcare is it's basically just very expensive, and it's also very hard to find. So uh, so to, to explain it uh, much simpler, so the thing is you have, you have the big licensed daycare centers. So these are the ones that take like 100 kids at a time. And then you have the family childcare providers. So these are the ones that practice in their homes. So they take like 10, 12 kids at a time. And it's just maybe one person taking care of all these kids. What, what, what has happened in recent years is that those family childcare providers have been, have been going out of business, you know, for, for numerous reasons. Uh, but in the Twin Cities, when they are being replaced by the licensed daycare centers, but these ones, those ones are actually not suitable for, you know, Greater Minnesota because one, the, they require a lot of students, you know, they need to fill out the center just to recoup, you know, their investment. So Greater Minnesota doesn't have as much kids. It's not as dense as the Twin Cities. And also it just requires high tuition. So parents in Greater Minnesota cannot afford uh, daycare centers. So what, what you find is that in the Twin Cities, you have the, day, the, the daycare centers, but they, they cost so high. But even in the low-income areas in the Twin Cities, you don't even have the daycare centers. And then in Greater Minnesota, you have these childcare deserts where you have like three, four kids where one one uh, slot of childcare available. So, you know, parents have been having a, a hard time even before the pandemic. And then the pandemic came and then all of provider has, providers had to close. They had to take in fewer kids because of all these rules that they had to follow. So some of them closed, you know, some of them actually survived because of the grants that they were given. Mm -hmm. So this is an issue that is going to get worse uh, potentially uh, in the near future. So, you know, a lot of has been done by the, the state of Minnesota, but most of it has focused on increasing funding, uh, expanding subsidies. But one of the issues that actually hasn't been take, uh, focused on as much is, you know, regulation. Uh, Childcare providers are heavily regulated. Uh, in Minnesota, you have all these uh, strict standards about child staff ratio, and then you mm -hmm. have all these requirements for teachers. You know, they have to have a bachelor's degree. Uh, they have right. to have 
many hours of training, some of which are not even directly related to them taking care of kids. And then you have all these rules applied consistently, sometimes punitively. You know, these stories about providers getting written down because maybe their water was like one degree over the required uh, water temperature. And then you have people get written, written up for things like uh, you know, prickly glass. So the issue with regulation is pretty, yeah, it's pretty huge actually. There's reports that they that come out by the tax force, task force that the, the Congress created and they outline all these issues year by year. But most of the times they always focus uh, their solutions on funding, which makes it the problem much worse as far as cost is concerned, but doesn't really bring in more suppliers into the market. Right, right. Well, uh, that's a very good point you make about the regulation. In fact, you've uh, motivated me to go out and uh, look up some information on that. Uh, what about, and once again, that's the whole second bring up these ideas. What about the idea of, and something I think about every once in a while, and I don't know the economic uh, feasibility of it, but what if we looked at public education starting with child infancy instead of fourth the four years old of kindergarten? Why don't we just expand it? Yeah. Uh, to, has that idea been tossed around uh, within the circles of economics and things like that? And what's been the result of an idea like that? Do you mean like universal child care? Well, well, I, I would say look at look at child care as part of the public school system. And, well, and does that make sense? But that's one of the things that I've thought about it. Uh, why don't we just make it part of public education? I guess that the, the, the proposal that comes close to that would be like universal childcare, maybe. Right, right, right. But it's yeah. still a separate entity. It's not like I send my child to school, we use property taxes and things to pay for it. This is just part of In fact, to be honest with you, uh, I even, uh, looking back on it, if I was a little smarter, I guess, and maybe it's a good thing I wasn't, uh, I might have even started educating my children while they were in the womb, like they talk about playing Beethoven and reciting numbers and things to them. But my, my, my point is, is that uh, we've talked a lot about early childhood learning. Why not look at learning and public education begin in infancy rather than at four years old? And I know some people are going to start talking about socialization skills and things like that. But it uh, seemed like to me that would be one of the options. Anyway, uh, has there been talked about in any circles, in the same circles? <laughs> I guess, I guess thought of, you know, people have thrown these proposal, proposals of like just making, you know, just introducing maybe uh, public daycare centers or just making oh, something like that. Yeah, right. but the issue with that is like, I think you, even with like you know you've seen with like the public school system you know parents yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good point <laughs> <laughs> yeah so actually they saw they did this study in canada where i think they had universal child care but what they found out was like a month later you know kids were developing issues with like behavioral issues so you know i think parents like the flexibility that comes with yeah 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 Bad idea, in other words. <laughs> you put that very, very uh, politely. Uh, so uh, I think I've seen some writings from you on the future job market 
in Minnesota. Am I correct on that, Martha? Well, so I, I do some work on Minnesota's economy and how it's doing. So yeah, I mm. I, I touch a little bit on how yeah our our jobs are doing. Uh, so I mean, what do we? I, I mean, we just had a report in uh, uh, like two months ago on Minnesota's economy for 2019. Mm -hmm. So we touched on you know things like productivity and the fact that our job participation rate, labor force participation rate, is going down. Has been going down in recent years. It'll probably be going. It'll probably be going down. There's a report by the bank that uh, estimated up to 2050 that, you know, participation rate will be going down, which means that uh, as a state, we have to look through other ways to increase our productivity. Because what we see is that our incomes are high because we have more people working compared to other states, but our productivity numbers are very concerning. So mm -hmm. there's a sort of, there's a couple of things that we need to do just so we can produce at similar levels as our other states. So that, okay. that's the area as well, yeah. Okay. And so, Martha, just a heads up here. Uh, you probably have to eat supper here shortly, and uh, I'm going to start winding down here. Uh, you, you, you mentioned the uh, uh, job rates and everything, the economy. Uh, I think the last I saw, well, I heard, the average uh, income a person moving out of Minnesota is in the $200,000 range. And the average income of the people moving into Minnesota is around the $37,000 range. Have you heard figures like that? And have it been discussed? And is there some concern somewhere uh, that we are, might not even be a word, I have to look up Scrabble. We are in poverty Minnesota in a way? Yeah, so, so yeah, there's a lot of numbers Showing our, our outward immigration, so we we've written at the center a lot about this. So what else, what we've seen in recent years is that our high income, high skilled earners are moving out at a higher rate than at a higher rate, and then we are getting also more low income, low skilled workers. It might be maybe because of our you know warfare that more low income people are coming in, or it could also be because our economy is uh, developing more service service jobs, you know, these are mm -hmm. jobs that pay lower than the average. Uh, when it comes to the people moving out, the theory is that, you know, high taxes are a contributing factor. Mm -hmm. And also when you actually survey people, one of the things that they say as they demo is that they're looking for job opportunities in other states, which means that Minnesota is not creating uh, job opportunities, more job opportunities as it should, at least compared to other states. But more more recently, at least with uh, more remote, you know, remote work, I think it's gonna be easier for Minnesotans that don't like property or high property taxes or income taxes to just move and then they'll be working from wherever they are. You know, Target, was that, was that Target or one of those corporations that just moved out of downtown? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Minneapolis. We, we probably will see a lot of that, and that's also one of the, the big issues affecting our productivity in the state. Okay, and then one of the biggest challenges is, uh, I think the last I heard, the budget deficit, state budget deficit, is projected, the number I heard, to be uh, a minus $1.8 billion, and I don't know how close that is, how correct that is, but the bottom line is that whatever that figure is, we're going to have to somehow make up those revenues 
and has there been discussion about making up those revenues and getting us back so, on even ground? Go ahead. Uh -huh. yeah. So there's actually been a lot of updates about the, the okay. focus. So in uh, so last year, that's when they had they had uh, they had projected the deficit. So the, the November focus, they had the deficit. But then when when the no, actually the May uh, focus had the deficit. But then when it when it the focus came out in November, the deficit for the 2021 year had actually gone. So it was just going to be a normal year. And it came the February focus for this year. Actually, we have a surplus for this year, and we also have a surplus for the next biennium. It's like 1.6 billion dollars. But it's actually pretty surprising that there's three point raise taxes when you have a surplus and you have money coming in from the federal government. <laughs> so it doesn't make all those things. But as far as our tax revenues are concerned, we're in a pretty good shape. We're doing much better than they expected. They actually just announced, I was I wrote this blog today that in February and March, they collected 20% more revenue than they forecasted, which means that the surplus will go higher probably. So for those of us who are not economists, we look at the fact that businesses are closing and closed and they've been impacted negatively in a lot of ways. We look at the fact that a lot of uh, individuals are not generating income. They are living off of uh, PPP or whatever you call that checks and things like How do you explain the fact that with the job losses, the business closing, people not working, that we're actually showing a surplus in revenues, Martha. Yeah, so so one thing that happened with, with, uh, with the job losses was that it was very concentrated among low-income individuals. Okay. So these are people that don't normally pay a lot in, you know, income. Yeah. Yeah. Like so so the, there wasn't a big blow to the tax revenue. But as of late, you know, people are spending more because, you know, the stimulus and, you know, just credit card spending. Yeah. So all of that has also contributed to the, to the higher revenues. But even if that hadn't happened, you know, the fact that most of these job losses were just amongst, uh, you know, low-income workers means that we wouldn't have had, like, a big blow to our revenues anyway, regardless. Right. Okay. And I promise I'm going to get you uh, So how do you explain the big demand in the and I guess in the whole real estate industry where houses are selling like hotcakes and now it's time to sell and expensive homes are selling. And maybe this has to do with the fact that the it's a lot of the negative impact was not at the high income level and things like that. How do you ex explain that the uh, uh, activity in the real estate market where it's really a seller's market and homes are just flying off the market? Yeah, well, um I probably need to, to read much. That could be a factor. The fact that, you know, most people that usually are in the market for a home didn't get impacted. But okay. there's also uh, the, the thing with, the, you know, interest rates, you know, they're, they're pretty low, uh, low right now. So people, like the demand is high, actually. So what you see is like the demand is higher than, than the supply, which is why the prices are so high. Okay. So a lot of things. Okay. Well, that's a good place to end it at, Martha. And that's going to be your homework because we probably gonna, one of the days have lunch together and I'm going to start probably with that question and we'll continue to discuss. So really appreciate you uh, taking out time here.
Uh, do you uh, ever eat grits? Have you ever eaten grits? Do you, are you uh, still eating grits, Martha? No, I I I, I do not, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I couldn't keep that on. So I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> I am. know. Okay, well, thank you very much again uh, for taking right. our time and sharing your knowledge with us and all the great things you, you've done. And I told you, I always ask all my guests, if there's someone out in the audience that's looking to become an economist and that's interested in research and economics and how it impacts uh, disadvantaged communities, uh, give them an idea of what they need to do and how you got where you are and the type of uh, hard work and discipline that it took and why it's so rewarding, uh, Mark. Yeah. Well, I think I think that the biggest thing is just to have the passion and to actually want to do research <laughs> and uh, be very interested in reading. I think that's that's one of the, the big things. And, and also be, be very open-minded because, you know, there, there's a lot of things that I, I've had to change my mind on during this journey, you know, things that appeared much more differently than, you know, you know, if you ask me, uh, 10 years ago, like, should we have like a, a minimum wage? Like, yeah, why not? You know, people need to be paid more. But once you look into the economics of it, the results are very different. So, you know, be, be open to uh, receiving different information, different point of views, being able to research, you know, look, look, look actually for yourself what actually is going on in the market or the economy. Yeah. So, yeah, that's an excellent point to end it on. Uh, look for yourself. And whether it's economics or any other fields, because just like you uh, and I, the more we look for ourselves, the more the our perspective and our answers and solutions change. In fact, we'll find out a lot of times that we are 180 degrees opposite of what really works. And so I really appreciate that. Look forward to talking to you again. And like I said, look forward to eventually having lunch with you and sitting down and talking. So thanks very much, Martha. You have a great evening. And we're forever appreciative of you being on the show. All right. Thank you for having me. Have a good, good night. Evening. Okay. Thank you.